Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins, Guy's Guy's Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and hopefully get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights from the guests I bring you each and every week on Guys Guys Radio. Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. I've got a fantastic show with a great guest to kick off the new year. Bill Madden, Hall of Fame sports writer. He covered the New York Yankees as a beat writer for about 30 years or so. And he's written a number of fantastic books, including two on George Steinbrenner, one on Don Zimmer, one on Lou Pinella. And he's got a new one out called Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. And I had a wonderful conversation with Bill. And I'm so excited about sharing it with you because I think you'll learn a lot about about how the day-to-day life of a sports writer works, some of the insights that Bill had. He has amazing stories, and it was a lot of fun chatting with him and a real honor because he's a true guy's guy. So Bill Madden's our special guest. Um, Growing up in New Jersey, uh, I'm a lifelong Yankees fan. We had Mickey Mantle, lived in my town for a a couple of years, a short period of time, and my parents got me into the Yankees when they took me and my brother to Old Timers Day a few times at Yankee Stadium, so we got to see, you know, Joe DiMaggio and Phil Rizzuto and some of the retired players, and then the current players who at the time, I'm dating myself here, but I got to see Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Elston Howard and Cleet Boyer and all these wonderful, wonderful Yankee icons and legends live and saw them do some amazing things on the field and it was just a great thrill and particularly if you're a little kid and you know all you know about it was the Yankees because they were such an amazing team they won or were in so many World Series so it was a real thrill for me and my real first sports kind of uh, connection that I made and I still have it to this day as so many other people do who grew up in the New York New Jersey area a lot of people there love the Yankees and uh, a lot of people outside the area hate the Yankees, but that's just the way it is. But at least the Yankees are an exciting team and they're a fun team to root for or against. So anyhow, some of my other memories, I mean, I've been to so many. I lived in I lived in New York City for about 30 years and I went to so many Yankee games and I saw the World Series games where they won, uh, playoff games. I remember seeing them lose that second game against the Braves. I think it was 1996. And then uh, I was riding the subway home with my friends. And one of my buddies said, sweep, 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 that the Yankees were going to come back. And they were down 0-2. And they did. They came back and they swept the Braves. I also was in the stands when they lost to the Dodgers. I think it was 81, Tommy John pitching 9-2. to They lost that. And believe it or not, I was at all four games between the Mets and the Red Sox uh, from corporate seats I had from my job in marketing at the time. And I saw games 1, 2, 6, and 7. So I saw the famous Bill Buckner game. And uh, as a Yankees fan, it was like, I don't like either of these teams. I didn't know who to root for. And... Uh, but it was a thrill because that turned out to be in a historic World Series. So if you grow up in the New Jersey, New York area, there was a lot of baseball. Baseball is really an important sport there, and it's a lot of fun. Now I'm out here in California. We've got the Padres, and they're doing a lot of things. So I can't wait to take my son to some more games. We went to a game uh, about two years ago when we came out here for a visit, 
and it was a lot of fun. And Petco Stadium is beautiful. So looking forward to when we get back to having a normal baseball season. And we've got a contending team out here now. And that'll be a lot of fun and be no bigger thrill than seeing the Padres and the Yankees square off in the World Series. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But until then, we've got a great show for you today. Again, Bill Madden is my special guest. I can't wait to get started. So why don't we do that right now? Guys, Guys Radio. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. I have a very, very special guest, sports writer extraordinaire, Bill Madden. I grew up in River Ridge, New Jersey, and I read the New York Daily News for years and years and years, and I always read Bill's column about the Yankees. He's just an amazing writer, a great reporter. He's covered Major League Baseball as a national baseball columnist for the news for more than 40 years, author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller Steinbrenner, which I actually bought for my mother for Christmas one year. And he's collaborated on memoirs about Lou Piniella, Don Zimmer, great Yankees. Uh, Bill has been the 2010 recipient of the Baseball Hall of Fame's J.G. Taylor Spink Award and is a member of the Writer's Wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's got a new book about Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Bill Madden. Thanks for being here, Bill. Good to be here. So let's uh, kind of start. You have a long storied career and you grew up in Oradell, New Jersey, next to neighboring River Ridge, where I grew up, and you went to Bergen Catholic. So you were an athlete before you became got into sports writing. Is that correct? I was. Uh... I was not a baseball player. Baseball wasn't my sport. I couldn't hit a curveball. Uh, I ran track at Bourbon Catholic, and I was a two-time state champion in 120. Wow. And, and then I, That's how I wound up in South Carolina on a scholarship, track scholarship at the University of South Carolina. So how did the writing uh, come about? Were you always uh, interested in writing, or was it just sports that you loved and you started writing, or how did you get into the business? I really always wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, my father weaned me on newspapers when I was a kid. Uh, we got the, uh, back in those days, there were seven newspapers in New York. And uh, we got the New York Herald Tribune delivered to our house in the mornings. That was my father's paper of choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the great sports sections of all time was in the Herald Tribune. Some of the great writers, Red Smith was right. a columnist and Tommy Holmes and Harold Rosenthal were their baseball writers, and and Stanley Woodward, the legendary editor, sports editor, was the sports editor of the Herald Tribune. And then at uh, in the afternoons, I would go downtown in Ordell, and I would pick up the Journal American and the World Telegram and Sun, and occasionally the Post. Mm-hmm. So I read four newspapers a day, and plus my father had a plumbing supply company in Hackensack, and... Plumbers used to come in every morning and leave copies of the Daily News on the counter there. And occasionally I got to read the Daily News, but not in my house. My father would not allow the paper in my house. He thought it was a, he thought it was a rag, is what he described it as. And uh, so I read it down there. But when I was down at the plumbing supply company, uh, my father said, you got to read Dick Young because he's the, he's the best sports baseball writer in New York. So I was kind of weaned on Red Smith in the morning and Dick Young at my father's store and um, all the others combined. Now, uh, how did you get the job with UPI then, your first job? Well, this is, 
This is the classic example of it's not what you know, but who you know. I was at the University of South Carolina, and uh, at the time, there were probably about 11 kids from the New York, New Jersey area at the time, 10 of whom were on the basketball team. <laughs> Frank McGuire, the legendary coach, South basketball coach, who was the national championship coach at North Carolina, and he was he was known for the fact that he did almost all of his recruiting out of the New York area. He had, they called it Frank McGuire's Underground Railway, and he did the same thing in South Carolina. And me being from the New York, New Jersey area, I was, I was already writing a column for the school paper, and uh, I traveled with the basketball team. So I kind of, by adoption, I became one of Frank's boys. Uh-huh. And um, so it was... Um, it was after my senior year, I still had um, more credits to get. I, was, I had to go to summer school to get the last uh, few credits for my degree. And um, I had that previous winter, uh, I had run into Dana Mosley, who was a columnist, uh, not a columnist, he was the hockey writer for the Daily News. I ran into him at a bar outside of the garden after one of the hockey games and I told him who I was, that I was at the University of South Carolina, and I was looking to get into sports writing. And he told me not to bother writing to the New York papers, that they wouldn't hire anybody out of, out of you know, college. But he said, you should write to the wire services because they cover the whole country. And their main offices are in New York here. And, you know, they'd be interested in a guy like you who grew up in New Jersey, went to school in South Carolina. You'd be right up their alley. And he gave me the name of a guy named Jack Griffin, who was the sports editor at UPI, United Press International. So I, I wrote Griffin a letter and I never heard back from him. So anyway, it's during the summer of 1970. And I was, by then I was working for the state paper while I was finishing up the last few credits for my degree, the state paper in Columbia. And I was covering high schools and things like that for them. And I'm sitting at my desk one day at the office and the sports editor comes out of his office and he says, Billy, uh, Frank McGuire's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. Now, you got to understand, this is like somebody, a cub reporter at the Daily News uh, 20 years ago. And the editor comes out and says, Rudy Giuliani's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. That's how big Frank McGuire was back in South Carolina. He, he could have been governor. He could have been anything. Everybody's looking at me, and I said, he wants to talk to me? And he said, and Herman Helms, my boss, said, yeah, he asked for you specifically. So I get on the phone. I said, Coach, how you doing? He says, good, Billy. Look, I don't have a whole lot of time here, but I just got off the phone with Jack Griffin up in New York, and you got the job. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. I said, Coach, I don't understand. How did you get involved in this? I I didn't use you. I would have told you if I was going to use you for a reference. And he says, well, you stupid jerk. You should have used me as a reference. Don't you know that when I was coaching at St. John's, Jack Griffin was my ball boy. Wow. So I'm like dumbfounded now. And so so Frank says to me, he says, look, Billy, you better get off the phone with me now and get on the phone with Griffin up in New York before he changes his mind. So I hang up with McGuire and I call Jack Griffin up in New York and he starts laughing and he says, Son, do you know how many letters I have from people like you all over the country? I have a stack of about 100 on my desk here. We have, an op- we have an opening here, and I was going through these letters. I come across yours, and it says University of South Carolina. And I looked at it, and I said, well, there's only one person who's going to decide whether I give this guy a job. 
and that was Coach McGuire. So, and he says, I called Frank, and Frank says, I should hire you. So you're hired. That's Amazing. how it all started. So uh, from there, you ended up at the Daily News then a couple of years later, right at the height of the Bronx Zoo. That must have been amazing, a local kid, and you got your job at UPI, and then you, all of a sudden, you're at the Daily News covering the Yankees right after they won the World Series. Yeah, I, um, I was at UPI for, uh, for nine years, and I left UPI in 1978. Actually, I was hired in the summer of 78, by a guy named Buddy Martin. He was the sports editor at the Daily News at the time. The problem was right before I was officially supposed to be hired, the newspapers all went on strike in New York. And so uh, I, had a, I had a wait to go to the Daily News. I was kind of a lame duck at UPI because the strike didn't end until after the World Series. So I officially got hired in November of 1978 at the News. And then I started in 79 backing up Phil Pepe on the Yankee beat. Right. Um, but I got a lot of time in on the Yankee beat in 79. Of course, that was a tumultuous year with Thurman's, Thurman. Thurman died, right? Over the plane crash, and I had to cover that. And, um, and of course, the Yankees were in turmoil all year long, having won the year before, but all kinds of things happened to them that year. And I finally got – I got – started to get used to the fact that covering George Steinbrenner was a 24-hour-a-day job. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, uh, my special guest, Hall of Fame sports writer Bill Madden. We're talking about the Yankees. So tell us about Steinbrenner. You wrote a, a, two books, I think, about him, and um, just an amazing character, uh, mercurial. Kind of reminds me of Trump a little bit sometimes. What was it like being around him and covering him? Well, uh, it's funny you should mention Trump because they were best friends and he is exactly like Trump. Exactly. I mean, they, they couldn't be. <laughs> it's um, it's uncanny how similar these two guys are in personality and the way they go about their business. Neither one of them ever paid their lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Neither one of them ever listened to anybody. They did just did things what they wanted to do. Um, but anyway, um, I had a very weird relationship with George. Uh, at times, I was his favorite writer in New York, I think mainly because I worked for the paper with the biggest circulation, and he knew he could get his biggest bang for his buck by giving exclusives to the Daily News. Uh, but uh, at the same time, um, we, had our, we had our differences along the way as well. And when he fired Lou Pinella the second time, Lou was a very personal friend of mine. We became personal friends. And for that, I could not forgive him. It's a long, involved story, but he wanted to he wanted to use me by planting a story about Lou that wasn't true in the papers to justify his firing of him. And I wouldn't go along with it. And um, I didn't speak to him for a couple of years after that. And then he got suspended from baseball by Faye Vincent, the commissioner at the time for what I considered to be trumped up charges uh, about he gave money to a gambler and they, Vincent tried to turn it into a, a, the fact that he broke baseball's cardinal rule about gambling in baseball. And it was a stretch to say the least. And at the same time, Vincent was getting out of control as commissioner. He, he uh, called Buck Showalter and Gene Michael into his office after a game and threatened to throw them out of baseball because they didn't support him in a drug case against Steve Howe, the Yankee 
relief right. at the time. And all of this was going on. And so I, I started writing a series of columns about Vincent. And um, at the same time, they were kind of pro-George columns and pointing out the fact that, that he, he really uh, did a number on George that I didn't think was fair at the time. And I think George saw these columns and uh, it was a strange thing because um, that's around the same time, this was during the time when baseball had a spring training strike and they were going to use replacement players. Right. And it was, uh, it was the height of the baseball wars. And so I was down in spring training. I was down in Fort Lauderdale and I was staying at George's hotel covering the replacement players. And I always, I always liked staying at George's hotel. So anyway, um, one day I was coming up from the dining room in George's hotel and it was a long hallway from the dining room to the lobby. And at the end of the lobby coming towards me is George. And as I wrote in my, as I wrote in my book about George, I said, this was like a scene out of Gunsmoke. Uh, the two of us are approaching each other and all of a sudden he yells at me. He says, Madden, is that you? And I said, yeah, that's me, George. And he said, he says, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm covering the replacement players. I said, I happen to like your hotel. He gets right in my face. He comes right up into my face. And I didn't know what he was going to say to me next. He looks at me and he says, Billy, whatever happened to us? And I never forgot that. That's a good and, story. Uh, from that point on, we became pretty good friends. And then when he did come back to baseball, when he was reinstated, I called him up and I said, uh, this was going to be opening day at Yankee Stadium, George's grand return. And I asked him if I could um, go with him to the stadium. He was staying at the Regency Hotel uh, in Midtown. And uh, I said, I'd love to accompany you to the stadium and kind of go through the day with you on your first day back. I was stunned when he said it was, he said he, I could do it. So he says, meet me at my hotel uh, at nine o'clock in the morning. Make sure you're not late. Of course, I was there by eight o'clock. Um, so we get in the car and we're driving up to the stadium. And uh, it was a, it was one of my most fun columns that I wrote because uh, our first stop was um, uh, we had a stop at the uh, ABC studios because George was invited to go on Regis and Kathy Lee, uh, Regis Philbin and Kathy Lee. So I accompanied him on the set and he's going back and forth with Regis and everything. And then um, we left there and uh, he gets on the phone and he calls Howard Cosell on his car phone. Cosell was dying of cancer at the time and he was in his hotel room and he, George is begging him to come to the ballpark. And he says, come on, Howard, it's a beautiful day. You got to come out. And Cosell is begging off. He says, no, I'm just too, I'm not well enough to come to the park. And so I'm, I'm listening to this whole conversation. And then we, then we get up to the stadium <laughs> and George starts complaining about all these old buildings around the stadium and, and how the, it looks like a slum around the stadium. He always was complaining about it, but now he's complaining anew about these buildings. And then all of a sudden he sees a guy standing there with a sign saying, I need tickets. So he rolls down the window and he looks at the guy and he says, everybody needs tickets. And the guy <laughs> looks at him and says, oh my God, it's Steinbrenner. <laughs> and with that, we went to the stadium and, uh, now we're met at the stadium by Jack Lawn, who was the team president at the time. And Lawn, this was a tradition. George's first day at the stadium, opening day, he 
Lawn would take him on a tour of the ballpark and he would inspect everything to make sure everything is in order. And um, we go all through the ballpark and George is looking to make sure there's no trash on the floors or any cigarette butts laying around or whatever. And now we go into one of the bathrooms upstairs on the upper le level and Lawn, without even being asked, goes into the bathroom stalls and starts flushing all the toilets. Oh he comes out of the bathroom <laughs> stall and he, he, George is like half paying attention to him. And Lawn looks up. Lawn had you. Lawn had uh, previously worked for for uh, he he was worked for President Bush, uh, forty one, and um, in the in the cabinet. And uh, so all of a sudden, Lawn looks up to the ceiling and he says, "Forgive me, Mr. President, for what I do." And I just cracked up. Amazing. So you you were with the covering the Yankees through. Well, you started uh, end of seventy eight. So you were there for when Munson died in seventy nine. You had uh, you know there was still Gidry and Catfish and Nettles and Reggie. What was like that like versus what came in the eighties where you had Winfield, Ricky Henderson, Mattingly? Was there like two different teams? And of course, now we can get into the nineties and the two thousands. But what was your sense as to what was going on? It was a big change when you started covering them, right? Well, yeah. I mean, even for both eras, uh, George was still the center of the universe, uh -huh. and um, it's nothing like it is today, where you walk into the clubhouse before the game today and there's nobody around. The players are all hiding in the back somewhere in their own clubhouse within the clubhouse. In those days, you'd walk into the clubhouse and um, we always have to write early stories for the paper to hold room for the game story in the early editions. And as Phil Pepe once told me when he turned over the beat to me, he says, with this team, never worry about your early. The Yankees will always provide. And by that, you would walk into that clubhouse and on any given day, somebody had a gripe with Steinbrenner, whether it was Goose, whether it was Nettles, whether it was Mickey Rivers. There was always an issue with the Yankees. You would walk in there and it was like, it was like uh, nonstop shopping. You could go to any, anybody, they were all in front of their lockers. Reggie would stick his foot out and make sure you didn't walk by his locker because he always wanted, he always wanted to talk to you. And it was, uh, it was, Phil was right. The Yankees always did provide. And, um, yeah, but it was, a, it was also a trip because of the fact that, as I said to you earlier, covering Steinbrenner and covering Steinbrenner's Yankees, the Bronx Zoo Yankees, so-called, uh, was like, a, you, you were a doctor on call. You never had a free moment. Mm -hmm. You never knew when you're going to get a call in the middle of the night that Billy Martin's been in a car accident or, or, somebody popped off to one of the other papers and you got to get Steinbrenner on the phone and whatever. It never stopped. Um, okay. Uh, Bill Madden's my guest on guys, guys radio. Um, we're talking about his career covering the Yankees for the New York daily news. Now you mentioned Lou Pinella and he was right in the thick of things at that time. And then he became manager. He had a couple of stints as, as manager. And you wrote a book about him, 50 years of kicking dirt, playing hard and winning in the sweet spot of baseball. What was your connection out of all those players with Lou Pinella? Sweet Lou. Well, Lou was, we just, we, we just uh, hit it off. He was, he was, I guess it really started. I was on a Yankee charter flight to the world series when I was, a, you know, just started on the beat. It was, a, it was, um, it was a 19, uh, actually it was when I was with UPI 
1977. And uh, my he was on the player, was he on the Royals then or the no, lose with the Yankees. Okay. The 77 World Series. Okay, right, 77, sorry. Okay. Um, and um, and uh, my sports editor at UPI, Milton Richmond, was a personal friend of Steinbrenner's, and he got us, the two of us, on the Yankee charter. And I'm sitting in the back of the plane, and Lou is sitting across the aisle from me, and he's reading the Wall Street Journal. And now you've got to understand, this is very <laughs> unusual for a ball player. You know, most of you'd most likely see them reading Field and Stream or something. Uh, so anyway, he starts talking to me about stocks. He doesn't even know who I am. But I, I remember that. I'll never forget that. And I said, this is, this is a different kind of player. And uh, later when I got on the Yankee beat, a couple of years later, I kind of, he kind of remembered me. And um, he was one of these guys that, you know, uh, he would always be in the, in the, hotel bar after the, after the games and stuff. And he, he was one of these guys that would talk to the writers. Like we were part of the team and um, we just really hit it off. And uh, we later became very good friends. In fact, he lives down here in Florida, right near me here in Florida. So what was your sense, Bill, of uh, all the different, because there's a lot of ground to cover, and I want to do it and make them put most of your time, um, all the different managers you covered. You had Tori, you had Pinella, Billy Martin, Yogi, and uh, Bob Lemon. I don't know if he was, he was there at the same yeah, time, Bob and Dallas Green. So what was your sense as to the different managers, their styles, and who you thought was the most effective? Well, I was the closest with Bob Lemon. Uh, I, I adored Bob Lemon. He was just a wonderful man. Uh, a real man's man. In fact, in 1982, I had to talk Bob Lemon out of out of quitting as George's manager. Uh, the Yankees had gotten off to a bad start in 1982, and all through that spring training, George had been hammering Lemon nightly, just driving him crazy. And uh, it was the first road trip. We were in Chicago, and uh, Lem took Lem was taking all the writers out to dinner at Miller's uh, Chop House in Chicago. And uh, he got, somehow I wound up in the same cab with Lem. And on our way to the Chop House, he says to me, he says, meet, he used to call everybody meet. He says, meet, I got to tell you, I, I can't stand in here anymore. I got to get out of here. The guy's driving me crazy. And I said, Lem, you can't do this. I'm, you can't, you can't quit because you'll never get your money. He won't pay you. You got to just stick it out. I'm, I'm begging you. You got to stick it out. And I'm saying to myself, this is this man has given me a scoop of scoops. He's telling me he's going to quit as Yankee manager. And here I am trying to talk him out of it. Well, as it turned out, he didn't quit. And then we got back to New York and George fired him and Lem got his money. But he was a great guy and I loved Lem. And then uh, I, another one of my favorites was Dick Hauser. We only had him for one year in 1980. Right. Yankees had one of their greatest seasons under Hauser. And then, of course, uh, Yogi was great. Uh, I'll tell you a quick, funny Yogi story. We were in Cleveland in uh, 1984, Yogi's first year, and uh, staying at the Stouffer's Hotel in Cleveland. I went down to the uh, coffee shop in the morning to get some breakfast, and Yogi's sitting all by himself down there. And uh, he motions me over to sit down and join him for breakfast. So uh, the waitress comes by. Yogi was already eating his eggs and coffee and uh, bacon or whatever. And she said, can I get you something? I said, I'll just have an English muffin and a cup of coffee. So anyway, 
we had breakfast for about an hour or so. We shot the breeze and everything. Check comes. I grab the check. And I'm looking at it. It says, I just inadvertently, I said, wow, $35 for breakfast. And Yogi, without batting an eye, he looks at me and he says, oh, it must have been the English muffin. <laughs> That's good. So you had a, a couple yeah. of different decades where, uh, you know, you went from the Bronx Zoo. Then in the 80s, it was Winfield and Mattingly. And uh, I think Rigetti threw his no-hitter. But they didn't win a championship in the 80s. I think they lost to the Dodgers. 81. Uh, 81. I was at the game 9-2. to two. Tommy yeah. John, I think, pitched. And uh, the Yanks lost. And that was the sixth game, I believe, was at the stadium for that. And then uh, you got to the 90s and the whole thing changed again. What was your sense of when the Yankees were going to get back to where, to, to the super team that they had in the 90s? Well, it started uh, really when um, Gene Michael came in and, and George was on suspension and they needed somebody to really run the team without any interference. And that was the only reason Gene would take the, the job, knowing that George wasn't going to be around to interfere with, with everything. And once Gene came in, he started turning everything around by bringing in players who were winning type players. He knew what kind of a he knew what kind of a culture he wanted to redevelop there, and he also knew what kind of players fit that culture. And he brought in people like uh, Steve Farr and. Uh, and uh, Stanley, Mike Stanley, and uh, and then he got Paul O'Neill in a trade, and you could see it all coming together. And of course, and then he brought in and he hired uh, Box, right? Too. He hired Buck Showalter to be the manager, and it was all starting to turn. You could see it happening, and of course, uh, George came back, but by this time he couldn't screw things up. Dina <laughs> created. Really, he created a dynasty there. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the same time, uh, through all those years, George was famous for trading away all of his top prospects for over-the-hill veterans. And uh, Gene, of course, would have none of that. And so the farm system was able to develop. And you had Posada, you had Jeter, you had Mariano Rivera, and, uh, all it, these, right? and Bernie Williams. Bernie, and yep. came into their own, along with the veterans that, Stick had brought in like Paul Boggs, know, right? And Knobloch, Ray Boggs, yeah. And so that's really how it all turned around. And uh, again, George had been sufficiently neutralized. And it wasn't until um, after Gene left as general manager that George started interfering again and things uh, started to go downhill again. Okay, so we get to uh, the next chapter is really uh, Jeter and then A Rod comes in. What was that like? What was the real dynamic there? Well, um, I knew from the beginning that if they acquired, there was rumors that they were going to get A-Rod because uh, previous deals that he had worked out had fallen through with other teams. And, um, and then, of course, what happened, they had steadfastly tried to resist signing him because they didn't, they didn't really need him at the time. And then, of course, the famous Aaron Boone off-season basketball injury, which right. was Achilles tendon, I believe it was. So now they had a desperate need for a third baseman. And um, even though A-Rod had been a shortstop his whole career, uh, he jumped at the chance to go to the Yankees because uh, the Red Sox were uh, – the uh, 
they were looking to unload him and um, get out from under his contract. Texas was, I should Texas, say. Texas, right. And Boston was looking at uh, signing him, right? And it was yeah, the Yanks swooped in. So the Yankees swooped in and they signed him. Well, they didn't sign him. They made a trade for him. They traded Toriano right. for him. And um, I knew, I instinctively knew that this was not going to be a good situation because uh, this was going to, this was going to upset that great chemistry that Gene Michael had created there. Still, I mean, A-Rod was, you know, he was a great player for them, uh, steroids or not. Mm-hmm. And they did manage to win one championship with him in yep. 2009. 2009 at Phillies, right? They beat. And then we went into the next era, which was like CC, uh, D.D. Gregorius, uh, Chapman, Sanchez, Torres, all the guys you have now, Judge, uh, going forward. What's your thought about what they've accomplished and what they could accomplish? And what's your prospects for uh, 2021 for the Yanks? I don't know. The Yankees are, uh, it's a kind of a, they've got a lot of issues with this team right now. Um, I am assuming they're going to re-sign LeMahieu at some point. Um, I think right now the entire free agent market is kind of really, certainly for the big names and the big money guys, uh, it's frozen because nobody, none of these teams know what time the season, when the season right. going to start, whether they're not going to have fans in the seat. There's so much cost uncertainty mm-hmm. that I don't see any of these guys signing maybe for another month or so until we have some idea of when the season's going to start. Otherwise, I think the Yankees are getting a break because they're in a very weak division, the American League East, which got weaker with Tampa Bay trading Snell, right? Like Snell and letting Charlie Morton go. So they're not going to have a whole lot of competition. But at the same time, the Yankees pitching staff is very problematic after Cole. Cole, He's right. The only sure thing they got in their rotation. So I think they're going to probably win the division out of, you know, by process of elimination. But I don't know how far they're going to go after that. Okay. Last question about the Yankees, because I want to talk about the Seaver book. Um, you're, the, who was the greatest Yankee you covered? And what was the greatest Yankee moment and the greatest Yankee game you covered? That's a 3-4 for you, Bill. Okay. <laughs> I got to think about Player, this. moment, and game. Um, greatest Yankee player I covered – well, I guess I'd have to say Jeter, mm-hmm. but for a short period of time, there was nobody greater than, than Don Mattingly. Uh, yep. He was he was special in those five years that he put in there until he got hurt. Hall um, of Fame for him? I think he de- belongs? He didn't do enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I voted for Donnie in his last year on the ballot because just in case he made a huge jump, I didn't want to be the guy that cost him one vote he needed to get elected. He never came close, but um, okay. But he was uh, a special player. Uh, greatest Yankee moment that you covered? I would probably say the uh, the '78 playoff game, uh, the Bucky Dent game. Mm-hmm. I was with UPI at the time. I was the lead baseball writer for UPI. And, the homer uh, off of Torres, right up in Boston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have to say that was because it was such a great game. It was, yeah. It was yeah. just riveting that game. There were so many aspects of that game that, you know, you forget okay. about it. Let's turn I the page. Remember, Go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. I remember them all when I did the book with Lou. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's an amazing history, amazing team, and you did such a wonderful job. I read you for years, and all my friends, we all read you forever, and thank you for all that wonderful work. Um, let's switch to Tom Seaver because, you know, you covered the Yankees for so long, yet you wrote this beautiful book. It just came out called Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, and he's a really interesting guy. And as a, as a Yankee reporter, how did, what was your connection with Tom Seaver, and how did you end up writing this wonderful, very heartfelt book? Well, I guess my relationship with him really started in uh, 1984, in January of 1984. Uh, I had been covering the Yankees, of course, and I didn't spend too much time on the Mets be around the Mets. But I would see Seaver in the offseason at banquets and things like that. And he knew who I was because uh, I was usually on the back page of the Daily News quite often because right. of the Brennan Yankees and everything. So he certainly knew who I was. Uh, and in, in January of 1984, baseball had something called the free agent compensation draft in which they, this was a product of the end product of the 1981 labor strike in which they had to come up with some sort of system to compensate teams indirectly who had lost free agent players. And they came up with this idea that every team in baseball could protect 15 players out of their entire organization. And the rest of the players would go into this pool and teams who lost free agents could pick out of this pool. So it wasn't directly from the team that took them, that took their player. It was indirectly. And um, I got a call one day, a couple of days before the draft and from a friend of mine who worked in the commissioner's office. And he asked me, he says, are you writing anything about the draft tomorrow? And I said, oh, it was actually two days later. And I said, I don't know. It's not really a New York story because neither the Yankees or the Mets lost any free agents. So I don't know if I, I don't know what I'm going to be writing about. He says, well, I have a feeling you're going to be writing a lot about it because it is a New York story. I said, why are you saying that? And he said, because I'm sitting here looking at the draft list and you'll never guess who the Mets have left unprotected on their list. And I said, who? He said, Seaver. Wow. I said, Seaver, you're kidding me. And so he's, what happened was, you know, and he says, and not only that, but I called the White Sox. They had the first pick in the draft. And this guy happened to be a White Sox fan. And he called the White Sox and he, he said, the White Sox confirmed to me they're going to take him on Friday. I said, oh, my God, what a story this is. So now I'm sitting on what is probably the biggest story I ever broke at the Daily News. I had to call Frank Cash and the general manager of the Mets to get a confirmation on it. And Cash and I got him on the phone and I told him what I knew. And he said, well, Billy, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, we did leave him unprotected, but he's a 39-year-old pitcher. We didn't think anybody would take him. And I said, well, Frank, I hate to tell you this, but uh, I have a good information that the White Sox are going to take him on Friday. So now there's a silence on the phone and Frank says to me, he says, well, you got to write what you got to write. And I guess I'll deal with it when when." It it happens. So now I'm sitting on this story and I could never do this today. You got to understand in this modern day of cell phones and right. Twitter and Facebook and, <laughs> exactly. internet and everything else, no story is sacred for more than two seconds. <laughs> so, but in those days, no, none of those things existed. And you could sit on paper, you could sit on a story throughout the day. And what we did, we, we held it out of the paper until the last edition. At the same time, I felt I had an obligation to Seaver 
I didn't want to blindside this guy the next day. He was going to have to leave the Mets for the second time in his career and uproot his family and have to go to Chicago, a different, a new team in a new league, designated hit, all of this stuff. This was a traumatic event in his, in his life. So I called him and I told him what was going on. And I, I said, I, I just wanted to let you know what was happening here. Uh, I didn't want you to be blindsided tomorrow in the paper. And he was very appreciative of the fact that I would take, make the effort to call him and, and basically tell him what was going to happen. And uh, from that day on, uh, I think he looked at me as more than just another sports writer. Uh, and we became friends. And ironically, two years later, of course, he came back and won his 300th game at a ball right. places Yankee Stadium. And That's right. Five, and then in 86, he was in the final year of his contract with the White Sox. And he wasn't doing that well. And the White Sox weren't doing that well. And he wanted to get home to New York and uh, get back home. And uh, he asked Ken Harrelson, the general manager of the White Sox, to see if he could trade him to the Mets, see if the Mets were interested. Well, this was 86 now. And the Mets were on their way to the World Series. Right. They had Darling and the Gooden and Sid Fernandez and Ojeda. They had no need. And Davey Johnson wanted no part of bringing Seaver in to his pitching staff. So that went nowhere. And so Seaver calls me and he said, uh, he said, I need a favor from you. And I said, what's that? He said, I need to get back to New York. I just, I miss my family and I'm going nowhere out here in Chicago. I'm lonely and I'm, this is a waste of my time out here. I need to get back to New York. Would you call Steinbrenner for me? I said, wow. I said, well, <laughs> I said, I guess so. I said, what do you want me to tell him? He says, just tell him I'd love to end my career with the Yankees. And if he could work out a deal, I would be very grateful. So I called, I, I told him, I said, well, you know what, Tom? I said, this is right up Steinbrenner. I said, this is right out of his playbook to upstage the Mets who have taken over the town, going to the World Series this year. And it was a great team they've got over there. They've really taken all the attention away from me. He could acquire Tom Seaver bring him back to New York for the third time as a Yankee. I said, I can't imagine he won't be up for this. So I called George and I was, I was truly surprised that he was only lukewarm to the idea. And um, he said, I don't know. I got to think about this, Billy. And, uh, and then I called Hall Carlson, White Sox general manager. I said, well, I've talked to George. I think he, I think he'll still do this, but uh he was kind of lukewarm to the idea. So Harrelson calls me back and he said, after talking to George, and he says, George is all hung up over this shortstop prospect that we have to have in this deal. His name was Carlos Martinez. He was a six foot six shortstop. And he was a prospect at the time. So he says, you got to talk to Steinbrenner and tell him, tell him he's got to do this deal, but we can't, we can't, we've got to have Martinez in the deal. So here I call George back. I said, I can't believe I'm in the middle of this. <laughs> You're like general manager. Right? Trade conversation. <laughs> so George says, I, I can't give up this kid. I said, George, we're talking about Tom Saver here. And you're hung <laughs> up over some shortstop who the scouts all tell me he's too big to play shortstop. He'll never play shortstop in the big leagues. Come on, George, you got to do this. But anyway, he, he wouldn't do the deal. Harrelson called me back later in the day and he said, George will not budge on Martinez, so I'm trading Seaver to the Red Sox. Right. And that's what happened. And, uh, but, again, we were that kind of friends 
at the time that Siva would t- call me and see if you know I could work out a deal to get him to the Yankees. Well, it's a great book. I love the fact that uh, Seaver says, you know, pitching's about velocity, location, and ball movement. And there's a, a, a little incident in there where he, he's not pitching well, and the manager comes out and says, you don't have anything. You don't have the velocity. He says, yeah, but I got the location and the ball movement. What's your sense of how Seaver was uh, the consummate pitcher? Which Was he the ultimate pitcher that you covered in your writing career? Was he the best? He was the most intelligent player I covered as a Mm-hmm. As a writer, uh, he was the smartest player I ever knew, and uh, of course, it, it epitomized the way he approached pitching. Uh, as he said to me on many occasions, I was an artist out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was um, Tom Hume of the uh, Reds, he was a reliever for the Reds when Seaver was over there, he was their closer actually. And he was a young kid born and raised in Cincinnati. Not very worldly until Seaver came over there. Seaver, he followed Seaver around like a puppy. Seaver would take him out to museums. And uh, as Tom Hume told me, he says, he really taught me culture. He taught me so much about everything, especially pitching. He said, the thing I will always remember with Tom, the way Tom approached pitching, he was always two pitches ahead, thinking two pitches ahead on every batter. And Amazing. the classic example of that was a story I got from uh, Tony Larusa. They were playing. A, they were playing a game. Uh, I forget where who they were playing against, uh, but there was uh, it was late in the game, and Seaver was starting to tire a little bit, and uh, there was a runner on third base, and there was two outs, and a dangerous left-handed hitter is coming up to bat. Seaver's got, uh, LaRusso's got a left-handed reliever in the bullpen. He starts to walk to the mound and Seaver waves him off. He says, no, 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 don't worry about it. I got this guy. So LaRusso makes an about face. He starts walking back to the dugout and Seaver yells at him. But just so you know, I'm going to fall behind in the count and then I'm going to get him to pop up to third base. So LaRusso shakes his head. He goes back to the dugout. Sure enough, Seaver falls behind 2-0. The batter is digging in now, looking for that fastball, and he throws him a changeup, and he pops it up to the third baseman. Seaver walks up the mound, and he winks at LaRusso. Unbelievable. Well, listen, Bill. Bill Madden, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio, I got to tell you, the book, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, is one of your best, and just your contribution to sports, and as a Yankees fan, and a long-time individual growing up in Bergen County and then New York City, following your column for many, many years, me, along with so many of my buddies, we say thank you for doing the wonderful work you did. And I'm really pleased that you came on my show, Guys Guys Radio, and you're a real guys guy, and I'm very appreciative. So thank you, Bill Madden. Let everybody know where they can find out more about you or get your book or whatever you want to share. Well, it's available in all good bookstores, uh, and it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble websites. and Costco has got a bunch of them. Uh, it's, okay. it, it's all around. Fantastic. And I hope there's more to come. Well, we'll see about that. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in the interim, enjoy Florida. And thank you so much. Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much, Bill. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Robert Manny's The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. 
It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, what a terrific conversation with a wonderful guest and a true guy's guy. Bill Madden, Hall of Fame sports writer, author of a number of great books about baseball, about Don Zimmer, Lou Pinella, a couple of books about Steinbrenner, and his latest, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. And again, although Tom Seaver wasn't a Yankee, he was a New York baseball icon and could be in the discussion for sure as to the greatest pitcher in our lifetime. He was just a real artist on the mound and I wasn't a Mets fan, but I was a Tom Seaver fan in that I really respected his his grit, his finesse, and his intelligence uh, on the mound. He just was amazing with the uh, location, philosophy, just his IQ of baseball, and an amazing guy and R.I.P. Tom Seaver. So what else did we learn from Bill Madden? Well, I think we learned that uh, sports writing and covering sports today is a little bit different because, you know, today's athletes uh, have their social media. So they kind of create their own uh, news, if you will, for the, for the fans out there. And back in the day when Bill was covering the Yankees as a beat reporter, there was no social media, and he uh, covered a real range of crazy personalities on the Yankees, everybody from... Uh, and I don't mean crazy, mental crazy, I mean just wild, uh, Reggie Jackson and Craig Nettles and Lou Pinella and a lot of very uh, articulate, interesting guys, if you will, and he covered them for years, and he got into that inner sanctum of trust by virtue of his credibility of, as a trusted sports writer, uh, he got close to George Steinbrenner and became kind of a confidant of him, and that's pretty amazing for a beat sports writer to be um, so warmly embraced by a mercurial personality like George Steinbrenner. And uh, again, Bill had some amazing stories. I, I, think back of, I think back of some of my own experiences being a Yankees fan, just amazing. My, I think my all-time favorite experience was watching TV and watching Chris Chambliss hit that home run against, I think it was the Royals, and it got the Yankees back in the World Series after, I think, a 13, 14-year drought and got them back in the mix. They went on to get swept by the Reds, but they were back. And then the next year, they got Reggie Jackson, and uh, I think that was 77. And they uh, Reggie had the three home runs, and that was my other big moment of watching the Yankees, not at the games, but uh, so many games I went to. I must have gone to over 100 games, most notably... Let's see. I remember them losing the World Series in 1981. I was in the stands when they lost the final game. Uh, Tommy John on the mound. They lost 9-2 to to the Dodgers. And also another game I remember was they lost uh, the second game in the World Series in the 96 World Series, I believe, against the Braves. And it looked bad because the Braves had this uh, really magnificent pitching staff, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavine etc. And we were riding the subway, my buddies and I, on the way home. And one of my friends, Greg, kept saying, sweep, 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 sweep. And uh, it just stuck in my head. I always remember that because what happened? The Yankees came out and they swept the Dodgers, uh, excuse me, the Braves, the next four games and won the World Series. 
And then in 98, they had that amazing team where they won over, I think they won like 110 games, something like that, 100, somewhere between 100 and 110 games. And they swept the Padres in the World Series. But so many memories, they blur together the New York Yankees. And I guess for me personally, my biggest memory is that when I was starting out writing, I actually uh, inspired, was inspired by Jim Bouton, was my inspiration to begin writing. I loved his book, Ball Four. And it was just amazing, and it changed my life. And I wrote to Jim when his uh, kind of one of those re revised versions of Ball 4, Ball 5, whatever, came out. And I asked him for some help with uh, my first manuscript that I had. And he was kind enough to write back to me, and he connected me with his agent. I didn't get a deal with his agent. It was my first try at a novel. But it did keep me in the game, and then I got my second novel published. So thank you, Jim Bouton, another great uh, remembrance, if you will, of my time and my life uh, following the New York Yankees. What a thrill. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The show is rebroadcast on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time on KCAA. Every Thursday, the podcast drops worldwide. We're on 26 platforms. We just got accepted by Pandora. I'm not sure if we've been uploaded yet, but we're going to be. So you can catch us pretty much everywhere you consume your podcasts. And our new YouTube channel is at Robert Manny on YouTube, but it's called Guys Guys TV. So I hope you join us there. My website is robertmanny.com. We've got over 300 plus blog posts, in-depth blog posts about everything about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, from relationships to wellness to work to friendship to love, sex, etc. It's there. And you can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. It's about two guys in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. Five-star rating on Amazon. You can check it out, but you can get three free chapters first. So I'm also all over social media, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So come say hi. And I assure you, we've got so many great shows lined up and great guests. Next week, we've got Neil Donald Walsh, the worldwide recognized spiritual messenger. He's got a new book out called The God Solution. And you might know him from his iconic book, Conversations with God. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about 2021. I hope you are also. Thanks so much for coming and visiting me here at Guys Guys Radio, and I'll see you next week. And as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>